You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. Proverbs, chapter 3. Let me mention a couple of things real quickly while you're finding your place there. Um, This year, we are going to uh, emphasize Operation Christmas Child in a little different way. Um, that usually happens uh, as uh, the calendar year gets uh, into like uh, October, November, uh, but we're trying to, to back that up just a little bit. You'll find some collection points uh, at various places on the campus um, starting in August, uh, and so let me encourage you to, as you go uh, pick up school supplies here uh, very soon, I know nobody wants to hear that the start of school is just around the corner, but it is. It's fast approaching. Uh, and so it's a great time when uh, there are sales on those kind of things for you to pick up a few extra items for uh, the shoe boxes for Operation Christmas Child. And we'll be giving you some further instructions and things like that. Let me just encourage you, if you've never filled one of those boxes before, uh, before you go buy some stuff, uh, that you check to make sure that that stuff is permissible. Because not everything uh, can be uh, put in those boxes. Uh, some things are not permitted, okay? And so just... As you think about that, um, let me encourage you uh, to grab a few of those things. Let me also say thank you and encourage you uh, to continue to be faithful in your giving. Um, We don't do a physical offering typically during the worship service. There is uh, an offering box on the way out as you leave, and we don't always emphasize that even. Uh, But I want to say how important our stewardship is and our giving is. Um, I just looked at the financial statements at the midway point in our year Uh, And God has been very gracious to provide for uh, his church, the work here, through the faithful giving of his people. And uh, that is how God uh, does his work. And so I want to encourage you with that. And so at the halfway point, our giving has exceeded our budgetary needs. That's not always the case in church life. I've been a pastor for 30-some years, so yes, thank you for that. Praise the Lord. Um, But that doesn't mean this is a good time to to let up, okay, because... uh, Church, uh, church life comes in cycles and seasons and all that. This is one of those seasons where naturally there are a lot of added expenditures uh, as it relates to missions trips and camps and vacation Bible school and all of those kinds of things. And so I do want to encourage you uh, to be faithful in your giving. And also with the Joshua Project, um, we are in a season of radical generosity there. And I know many of you uh, made a commitment now almost three years ago And I want to say how grateful I am that uh, so many have uh, fulfilled that. And uh, if you're like us, we're praying about what we can continue to do. I'm going to continue to give at least the amount that we've been giving by the grace of God. And so I want to encourage you with that. Also, we'll be giving you some regular updates fairly soon as things start happening. Just know that work is being done, okay? Uh, don't, Don't get discouraged. You drive over there and see it's still a cornfield, okay? It won't be for very long, trust me. And so uh, there's, there are things happening, and so hopefully within the next couple of weeks, uh, you'll see some activity over on Colin McKinney Parkway. Let's take our Bibles again, look at Proverbs chapter 3 this morning. We are looking uh, at wisdom in the book of Proverbs this summer, and looking primarily at the speeches uh, or the appeals from a father to his son found in chapters 1 through 8. Now, these appeals come to us primarily in poetic form, and they lay out for us the themes 
uh, or the clusters uh, that appear throughout the Proverbs themselves, the sayings uh, that you normally think of when you think of a proverb that come actually in later chapters. Again, the, the dictionary definition uh, uh, for wisdom is the ability to make good judgments based upon uh, what you have learned from experience. Uh, we know uh, that an unsaved person can possess a measure of wisdom in that sense. Okay? There are unsaved people who make what we would consider wise decisions every day. Uh, but for our purposes, and especially as we look at God's word, we would expand that definition to say that biblical wisdom is the ability to see life and life's decisions um, from God's perspective. Uh, and based upon that and the wisdom that God gives us in his word to make decisions that are in line with his word, uh, with his very character and nature. And that's why we have hopefully made it clear uh, that wisdom is not really a thing. Wisdom is a person. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of wisdom. And I remind you, as I have every week, Paul writing to the Corinthians said, but to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so if you want to see a display of wisdom you look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so if we were to make a list, even from the book of Proverbs, of what we might consider biblical character traits, and you want to see an example of that, you look to Jesus. Uh, so if you're like me, and you'd say, man, I need to guard my tongue more, or I need to practice more patience, or uh, look at Jesus. <laughs> look at Jesus, because he perfectly embodied the wisdom of of God. Now, the opening chapters of Proverbs here issue this clear invitation to pursue, to seek after, to obtain wisdom. This is not something that uh, we passively sit on the sidelines and hope that it falls our way, falls in our lap somehow. And we're told here to pursue wisdom, to seek it. In fact, it makes it clear uh, that seeking wisdom is the essence of wisdom, uh, to seek it diligently. Uh, and yet, no matter how diligently we may apply ourselves, ultimately we are in and of ourselves incapable uh, of, of laying hold of the wisdom that we so desperately need. And so because of that, God graciously gives it to us. That's why uh, Scripture tells us, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. Uh, now, last week in chapter 2, we looked at what reads like um, one long conditional sentence. Uh, you have the if-then uh, clause And that if clause is set out in uh, verses 1 through 4 there of chapter 2, stressing the need to seek diligently after wisdom, like we would treasure, uh, like gold and silver. You seek for it. Uh, those who do will understand the fear of the Lord, because again, that is what characterizes and where wisdom begins, is with the fear of the Lord and would understand God's ways. And then in verses 9 through 22, we saw how wisdom benefits those who find it. Now, the third paternal appeal that we find here as we turn our attention to chapter 3, the first 12 verses is where we'll be today, provides instruction on how to act in wisdom and teaches that obeying that instruction results in blessing. Now, at a first glance, if we were to practice uh, some eisegesis, if we were to press our uh, opinions maybe on the text, we might say, well, this is the prosperity gospel. Uh, and if you don't do a careful reading and you don't have a clear understanding of what we're seeing here in the book of Proverbs, you might come to that conclusion 
uh, that God uh, promises to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise if we will do certain things. Um, But that's not the case. And I think we're going to see that clearly here in just a few moments. Uh, Verses 3 and 4 are a call to safeguard a life of faithfulness to God. And then verses 5 through 8 teach the necessity of humility, firmly anchored in trusting the Lord. Verses 9 and 10, they guide us to acknowledge in practical ways that everything comes from God's hand. And then in verses 11 and 12, it's a call to submit ourselves to God's discipline. And so rewards of success and health and prosperity, they are held forth here for obeying the instruction in this passage. That's clear. But are those blessings always experienced in tangible ways in the here and now? I think that's where we get off track many times when we start adopting and embracing a prosperity gospel that would say these are the things that you can expect and you will find at every turn today in this life. And so that leaves people confused many times because they're like, man, I've been, I've been practicing good biblical stewardship and I've been, I've been giving of my resources faithfully and everything and yet I still got laid off from my job. What's up with that? And it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't mesh with the prosperity gospel. Or, man, I've been, I've been living for the Lord. I've been faithful in church attendance. I've been reading my Bible every day and everything, and I still got, you know, I got that cancer diagnosis. What's up with that? And it leaves people confused. And so we have to understand that throughout Scripture, there is always this already but not yet concept. For example, we are, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you know him as Savior and Lord, then you are already saved from the power of sin. You, you are saved from the penalty of sin, but we are not yet saved from the presence of sin. In case you hadn't noticed, we still live in a very broken, jacked up, sinful world. And it's something that I, I struggle with every day. And I suspect that you do too. I have to get up every day and go, hey, am I going to live today for Mike Lovely? Or am I going to live for the glory of God? And like the Apostle Paul, I find myself saying, man, there's a lot of things that I don't want to do, but I find myself doing them. And there's some things that I know I should do, but I don't do them. And it's just, it's just, it's just constant struggle. And so there's this already but not yet. And I think that's what we find in the fulfillment of some of these things that would come to us as a result of seeking after and, and living lives of wisdom. Okay, that's why we said in the first message, the introductory message, that a lot of people mistakenly take Proverbs and they say, well, these are universal promises that can be applied across the board in all situations. And that's not always the case. And so let's get a better understanding as we look together at the first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3 this morning. I hope you'll follow along uh, as I read. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. There's one of those promises. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. 
For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. The main theme of the first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3 here is trust. Is trust. And I think we have to recognize that many people today, and maybe includes you, you struggle with trust. Uh, over the course of my pastoral ministry, I've had people uh, sit in my office and tell me, I, I, have str- I, I, I struggle to, to trust a pastor. And the reason for that is because they've been hurt by a pastor. Uh, they have uh, experienced a pastor who uh, destroyed their trust. Uh, maybe they were abused by that pastor. Maybe it was abusive leadership, or uh, it could be even worse. Uh, maybe there are some who would say, I-, I struggle with trusting God as my heavenly father because I learned over the course of my life that I couldn't trust my earthly father. So trust is not something that comes easy for many of us. Uh, we're, we're slow to trust, and uh, uh, to some degree that, that makes sense, and that, that's, that's understandable. But that, the call here in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, is largely this call to trust God. Trust the Lord, because after all, He is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. Uh, it's, uh, I think in, in the sovereignty of God, that that's the verse of Scripture that I'm memorizing this week, as I'm uh, memorizing a verse every week, uh, trying to anyway, by the grace of God, and and the, the scripture that I'm memorizing this week just started today. A couple of you have already held me accountable to this. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. It says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. It's the very nature of God to be faithful. And so we, we rely upon him. We trust him because he is trustworthy. And so uh, the father here, Solomon, is, is telling his son... That he, because he knows God is trustworthy, he wants to pass that on to his son. That's good parenting uh, that focuses on the child's faith in God. And so it's also a lesson to us parents, regardless of how old your kids may be or how young they may be, that we want to live lives that would demonstrate in a tangible way that we can trust God. God is trustworthy. And so we can trust him, even in times and seasons when we don't fully understand it, or we think his timing is off, or we're unclear on what God may be doing in our lives, and he's not answering our prayers exactly the way that we think he should, or maybe would hoped, and, but we've got to trust God, that God is always working all things ultimately for our good and for his glory. That's not always an easy thing to do. So in these verses, the father exhorts his son to trust God, and he provides incentives to do so. These verses contain several promises, or what we're calling treasures today, that are connected to trusting in the Lord. There are two major headings here uh, in this section of chapter 3. The command to trust in verses 1 through 4, and then the treasure or the consequences of that trust in verses 5 through 12. And so I want us to first consider the command to trust. Again, these verses, they portray a, a wise father exhorting his son to trust God. But as we're going to see, a life of trust in God produces a life that is trustworthy. And so this is the first promise that we discover in this text. Now, it starts with this concept of don't forget. 
Don't forget. This is written in the imperative form. My son, do not forget my teaching. And I want you to notice the heart language or the covenant language uh, in these first few verses of chapter 3. And let your heart keep my commandments. So that makes it clear that we're not talking about simple behavior modification here. Okay, The, the plea that Solomon is making to his son and, and, and by the Holy Spirit making to us is not, hey, this is an opportunity for you to just kind of grit your teeth and be, be a better person. That's not what Proverbs is about. That's how people use Proverbs many times. But that's not what he's getting at here. He's saying the way that you will live a trustworthy life is ultimately by placing your trust in the one, Almighty God, who is completely trustworthy. And so this exhortation is straightforward. The son must not forget the commandments of God that the father has taught him. Now, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I discover... How many things I've forgotten? Um, those of you who know us know that we have three adult children and we have an 11-year-old, okay? So she's going into the sixth grade this next year. And uh, I'm just going to be real open and honest uh, with you right now, uh, very transparent, uh, that sometimes when she needs help with certain concepts, especially in the area of math, I realize I, I may have forgotten a few things, Okay. I need to brush up on some, some mathematics, right? I, I forget those things. So he's saying here, these are the kind of things you can't afford to forget. Okay, you've got to prioritize this. You, you can't afford to forget these commandments of God and that have been taught. My son, do not forget my teaching and let your heart keep my commandments. That's that covenant language, that it's a matter of the heart. So what, again, what we're seeing here is not just outward behavior modification, but we're seeing an inward-outward transformation. So as you're transformed by the power of God, the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, then you become more like Jesus. You look more like Jesus. That was the whole idea behind the concept of discipleship in biblical times. You would literally attach yourselves to a master. And so th- th- there were not just the 12 disciples that we typically think of who followed Jesus in his earthly ministry. There were other people who would have been considered disciples in that day. They might be the disciple of a, of a potter, or they might be the disciple of a, of a mason, or, or, or whatever the case may be. And so you were saying, I want to apprentice myself to you. I want to be a learner of yours. That's what biblical discipleship is. It's saying, I, that's the, the word literally in the Greek language, mathetes, means a learner. So you're attaching yourself to him. And don't forget these things. Don't you, don't you suspect that if you were apprenticing yourself to someone, that you would want to pay careful attention to the skills and the truths that they were giving you related to that trade. So you might somehow make notes of the things that they were teaching you, or you would want to try to, in any way that you possibly could, to make sure you retained that information, that you held on to it. That's essentially what Solomon is saying here. Son, you want to be wise? Don't forget these commandments of God. In fact, keep them on your heart. That means we have to internalize the word of God. Now, commentators have noted the parallels between these four verses and the opening four verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, we've, we've looked at Deuteronomy 6 before in the context of another sermon series. And, and what we find there is what's known as the Shema. Uh, the word Shema in the Hebrew means hear. And so it starts with, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it goes on to say, you shall teach these things diligently to your children. 
pass on these truths. And so Solomon, I believe, is making an appeal to that. And so since Proverbs is really about living faithful to God's covenant, that makes perfect sense. So if you notice here, in these first few verses especially, you have this kind of uh, odd verses, even verses kind of thing going on. And what you find in the odd verses are you find these, uh, these commands, or what we might call these covenant obligations, and then in the, the even number verses, you find the promises associated with those. And so that's the case here. If the son will not forget God's commands, a glorious promise can be his. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. As in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the trusting and trustworthy son will be blessed with fullness of life is the concept here. It's a wonderful promise. It's a wonderful promise. So he says, don't forget. And then he says, don't forsake. Don't forsake. Solomon continues, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. In other words, remain faithful, remain steadfast in your love. Bind them, he goes on, here's this heart language again, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, verse 3. So again, in Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9, Moses exhorted parents to teach their children well by teaching them the word of God. Discipling them. And I would just quickly say to you parents, The first place that you need to be a disciple maker is in your home. That's your first mission field, to be a disciple maker in your home. They were to bind the word to their home, and the faithful father would exhort his son to bind the qualities of steadfast love and faithfulness to his neck and to his heart. And so love, faithfulness, these two of God's most glorious characteristics, perfections at the very heart of God's covenant with the people of Israel. So the father exhorts his son to remember these truths about God. And yet the emphasis seems to be on the son exercising these qualities. So it's not just a a head knowledge. It's not just a head knowledge. It's actually applying that. That's wisdom. Okay, so seeking after wisdom is not just getting more information about God. Some of the most biblically intelligent people I know, as far as biblical facts and biblical knowledge and all those things, are people who are not following after God. They have not put that wisdom into practice. And I think that's what he is getting at here. Now, there's a promise associated again, given in verse 4, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Now, we can summarize that promise as an approved character. So many times in Scripture when we see the word success, we think of success the way that we think of it in our current cultural context. Successful in our current cultural context is you got to have a a big bank account, you got to have a certain kind of house, drive a certain kind of car, you got to, that's all how we measure success many times. That's not what he's getting at here. That's not really the point. So we're, we're talking about the integrity of an individual's life. It's the fruit of one who walks with God, is pursuing godly wisdom and living in that. And so, though the godly person will have plenty of hardships and setbacks and difficulties, the godly will respect that person. In fact, the the words translated good success could be translated good repute. I don't know about you, but uh, as I was growing up, one of the things that was kind of drilled into me was that I didn't want to do anything that would dishonor our family name. 
I mean, Scripture speaks to that. It says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. That's not just talking about, you know, having an amazing name like lovely. I mean, you know, you know how many times I've been, t- oh, that's lovely. That's a lovely name. And so I just grin and smile as if they're the first person who ever thought of that, you know. That's not what it's talking about. We're talking about a person, you have a, you have a good name, and that, that when people think of you, they think, man, that person's trustworthy. I'd, I'd go into battle with them in a heartbeat. I, I know that they can be trusted. That's something you have to earn. That's something you have to earn. Uh, it's one of the things that, that a lot of pastors fail to understand, especially early in their ministry. They feel like, man, because I've got a title attached to my name or I've got a you know, sign on my office door or whatever that people will just immediately respect me and trust me. That's not how it works. You prove yourself trustworthy, then you can be trusted. And that's the idea here uh, behind this promise. Now I want us to move into the to the next section of verses, verses 5 through 12. And I want us to consider the treasure, or what we would consider the, the consequences, the result of that trust. It remains the dominant theme, this idea of trust, but it's exercised and it's revealed in various settings and contexts of life. Uh, let's face it, it, it seems a lot easier to trust God when things are going our way, right? Bills are all paid, Cars running good, jobs going okay, marriage is, you know, man, we're doing good there. It's like, man, I can, but what, what about in the other times of life? Which I've discovered makes up a lot of life. <laughs> Rarely can we say in every of our lives, everything's going exactly the way that we would like for it to go. There's just, there's always challenges. And so what does that look like? I want you to look at this first. Trust God in your trials. Trust God in your trials. And that's where we come to verses 5 and 6 that are probably the most familiar verses, uh, if not in this chapter, if not in the entire book of Proverbs, at least in this chapter. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Some of the most well-known verses in Scripture. And we often find help here when we are faced with the trial of making decisions that on the surface are difficult to make. And that's understandable. Maybe it's a a career decision, or maybe it's a a, a difficult relationship decision, or it's a a marriage matter, or or, or, or whatever the case may be. These verses certainly apply in those cases, but they apply in many other areas as well. And I want you to notice a couple of things about these two verses of Scripture that you may miss, even in your familiarity with them. We learn here first that our trust must be entire. Must be entire. I think many times uh, we, we, we use these verses and we say, well, th- th- when I'm going to really trust the Lord is when I can't get it all figured out. That's kind of how we apply these two verses many times. No, he says, with all your heart, trust in the Lord with all your heart. So no double-mindedness is is permitted here, is what he's saying. How do we do this? What does that mean? Well, at the very least, the Hebrew parallelism that we find here means that to trust the Lord entirely means that we do not lean on our own understanding. In other words, through Proverbs, and though it encourages understanding, it must be informed and must be shaped by God's Word. 
worldly understanding is excluded. And then I want you to notice here, too, that our trust must be exclusive. So in all your ways, acknowledge him. Literally, Solomon is saying here, in all your ways, know God. And when we think of acknowledging someone, we think of, you know, you pass them in the hallway, you go, hey, what's up? And that's, quite frankly, how some people are with God. <laughs> it's like, hey, that, that's not what he's getting at here. He's saying, in all your ways, know God. Seek godly wisdom. This is how we learn to trust God. This is how we know that we can trust God in our various trials. In whatever ways we are tried, we must pursue the knowledge of God as personified in Jesus Christ. And as one commentator has said, it is is not as important that we don't know the future, only that we know that he knows the future. It's not so important that we don't understand what happens to us, only that we know that he knows what happens to us. Not important that we can't control events like we are so inclined to do, only that we know that he does and we submit to his sovereignty in our lives. We don't always see it, don't always understand it. That's where the trust comes in. Certainly included in this promise is that on our earthly journey, The Lord will graciously shine his face on us and keep us. He will not let us down. He will lead us to where we need to be. So when you see the text say that he will make straight your paths, don't think that means he's going to put you on easy road all the time. Uh, There'll never be any difficult turns or potholes or uphill climbs or anything like that. No, he's saying that ultimately... Ultimately, as you fully and completely and exclusively trust God, while at the same time refusing to lean on your own worldly, earthly, limited understanding, God's path will lead you to where you ultimately need to be. It will ultimately lead you to where you need to be. Trust God in your trials. Secondly, trust God in your temptations. Verses 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. Now, those verses speak about the temptations that we often face as we strive to live a life trusting the Lord. And we all know that as we walk through this world, we face various temptations that seek to get us off the path. We saw that very clearly in in week two. Uh, When Solomon said very clearly to his son in that first paternal appeal, My son, if sinners entice you, That word enticement brings with it the idea of of presenting something to you that's appealing. And in that particular case, it was was easy gain, grounded in greed. When when sinners entice you, do not consent. Don't go there. Don't do it. So whenever we're tempted to chase evil or chase those things that would even not be best for us in God's eyes, we have to choose rather to trust the Lord and His Word. Trust the Lord. So exactly how do we do that here? Well, let's break it down a bit. First, we must trust humbly. He says, be not wise in your own eyes. I I doubt that I'm the only person in the room who would say this, but the times and seasons in my life where I've gotten in the most trouble is because I thought I had things all figured out. I thought I knew better than my parents. I thought I knew better than God himself. I, I thought I had it all figured out. I had the world by the tail, and I'd jump headlong into some stupid, stupid stuff. And it's easy to do. It's easy to do because that stuff can often look appealing. 
It looks promising, but ultimately it's not. That's why we've got to understand, I don't have it all figured out. That's why I often say this. People that concern me the most in this world are the people that think they've got God all figured out. I have all the answers. We've got to recognize, again, it comes back to this whole idea of needing the wisdom, needing it. So we must be dependent on God's eyes, not our own. We must trust uh, the Lord God Almighty. And then secondly, we're to trust reverently. And it comes back to this concept of the fear of the Lord. Remember in, in the introductory message, chapter 1, that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. It's having an understanding of who God is and who we are not. He is God, we are not. He is creator, we are not. He is all-knowing. We are not. He is all-powerful. We are not. So we fully trust him. Fear the Lord. And then thirdly, we must trust resistantly. He says, turn away from evil. We must take personal responsibility in light of the wisdom of God that he clearly gives us in his word, the tools that he gives us, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, convicting our hearts of sin, the word of God that convicts us, then we take personal responsibility to abhor, to hate, to avoid evil at all costs. Anything that godly wisdom would tell us is not God's best for us. And so as we trust humbly, reverently, resistantly, we are again given this amazing promise. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Flesh here is literally a reference to the umbilical cord. It speaks of that which nourishes life. Refreshment could be translated moisture. The idea is, is of bones that are healthy and that are not dried up. And so the promise is that of a life that is healthy. It's not suggesting that if you do these certain things, then you will never experience earthly sickness, anything like that. And again, these things will ultimately be fulfilled when all things are restored. Glorified. Again, the prosperity gospel of our day says these are things you can expect now. These things you can expect now. And that's not the case. I want you to notice that we're to then trust God with our treasures. Trust God with our treasures. Third major area of trust here in verses 9 and 10. And one that I would say, uh, most of us, if we're completely honest, one where we struggle is to trust God with our stuff. Because the things of this world <laughs> uh, that we work for, that we sacrifice for, that, that you, know, you, you, you labor, all those things, you, we naturally feel like this is my stuff. I've worked for it. I've accumulated it. It's mine. It's one of the reasons that I often say when people are having stewardship issues, it ultimately is an ownership issue. And the reason that scripture makes it clear in this particular area, and I think that the, the, the best word is stewardship, because what it does is it recognizes anything that we have in, the, in terms of earthly resources, whether it's your money, your home, your cars, or whatever it is, it all ultimately belongs to God. And when you don't take that approach, you don't see the stuff of this world as belonging to God, then you naturally think it belongs to you. And so you should be able to do with it what you want to. But that's not biblical stewardship. And so this is where we have to trust God. These verses address the area in which many of us struggle when it comes to trusting God. We'll say, man, God, I'll, I'll trust you in this area. I'll trust you in this area and this area. But I got this one closet over here, and that's mine. 
That's mine. God says, no, it's all mine. And you are to be a wise steward of everything that I have entrusted to you. That's the idea. The, the word in the New Testament, in the Greek language, for, for a steward is oikonomos. It means a house manager. So while you certainly have worked hard, I presume, for what you've accumulated, whether it's in your bank account or your savings account or wherever it may be in terms of your assets, the things that you would say are your earthly possessions, the things that you will include on your, uh, your end-of-life directives or your will or whatever the case may be, those things all ultimately belong to God, and you are managing them for Him. And that's the point that he's making here. Now, it's interesting that, again, we see some agrarian language here that's maybe a little unfamiliar to us, this idea of first fruits and, and that sort of thing, although some of you are very gracious and uh, um, giving some of your first fruits to the pastor and his family. It's very nice. We appreciate that more than you can imagine. But the idea here, whenever we see this word honor as it relates to possessions, the word translated honor literally means heavy or weighty. That's kind of a foreign concept to us, because if you walk up to me and say, Pastor Mike, you're looking a little weighty today, I'm probably going to have my feelings hurt, right? But in worship, in honoring someone in that day particularly, what you were saying is, by, by, you were ascribing weight to them, is how they would say it. Again, it's a foreign concept to us in our culture, but that's what worship is. When you're pouring out your heart to God in worship, okay, whether it's in singing or listening attentively to the word preached or whatever, you're saying, my God is so weighty, so heavy in his magnificence, in his sovereignty, in his power that he is due these things. That's how you honor him, as weighty. They would even say of a king in that day, if a king came into town in the great procession or whatever, they would say, he's weighty, is essentially how they would say it, or man, he's heavy. He's heavy. That's the idea here. Those who trust God understand that God gives to us in order to give through us. God gives to us in order to give through us. And so are we being trustworthy with what he has entrusted to us? Are we being trustworthy? And then finally, I want you to notice, trust God in your training. In verses 11 and 12, he says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So we believe that biblically, the Christian life is one of growing trust in the Lord. And that requires training. It requires training. It requires discipline. It requires chastening. One commentator said it this way, to become a Christian is to become a child of God, and that means to come under his discipline. His discipline. I think that's why we're given two distinctly different directives as it relates to temptation and, and, and training. Two completely different things, two completely different responses. When it comes to temptation to sin, God says, get out from it, flee it, run from it. In the book of Proverbs, it says, abhor what is evil while you cling to what is good. So you flee temptation. And you see that language used many times uh, in Scripture. Flee youthful lust. Flee sexual immorality. Get away from it. But when it comes to the training of the Lord, the, the word is hupomene. It means to literally bear up under it. 
to bear up under. Just like a, a weightlifter would get up under a, 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 a bar uh, to, to squat. That's the, that's the idea. So you bear up under it. Now, our, our inclination many times is to say, Lord, get me out from under this. Okay? But if you know anything about the human anatomy, you've ever worked with athletes, you know that if, if, if athletes are going to get stronger and faster and all those things, their muscles have got to be put to the test. Okay? You've got to be tried. And that's where the weight room becomes important and those kind of things. That's the whole concept here. This discipline speaks of instruction through chastening. And so when we fail to trust God, there'll be consequences. And sometimes those consequences are painful. Now, not all discipline, I'm not suggesting that all discipline is because of our sin. Sometimes we are suffering the consequences of sin because we do stupid things. We choose to disobey. That's why we always say it this way. You choose to sin, you choose to suffer. That's just a, you, that's an eternal truth that you find throughout Scripture. When we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. Now, many times, as is the case with Job, that brings these things to mature us so that we will honor him. And so while verses 9 and 10 tell us how to honor God during prosperity, verses 11 and 12 train us to honor God in the midst of adversity. So how do we respond to that discipline? Well, you don't underreact. He says, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Don't treat it lightly. Don't treat it as insignificant that God is lovingly at work in your life. In fact, you should, uh, you should take some refuge in the fact that he says, if I'm chastening you, that means I love you. There's probably not a parent in the room who hasn't at one time or another said to their kid in the midst of discipline, I'm doing this because I love you. Now, when you're a kid, you don't get that. Like, dad, this is a strange way to show your love for me. Okay? But we know that, that that's part of parenting, right? And so we're, we're not to underreact, but we're not to overreact. Do not be weary of his reproof. Don't let it bring you down. Don't be crushed by it. Thank God for it and learn to trust him more. And the promise here is implied. Like so much of the Old Testament, it awaits fuller revelation in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 11 says this, Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Been trained by it. Notice the promise, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The fruit of the painful process is growth in godliness. This results from growth in trusting in God. And the training has to build our trust. And in the light of this passage, that means more of God's blessed treasures. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of this. Hebrews 5.8 reveals that he learned obedience by the things that he, what? Suffered. The things that he suffered. That's amazing and unfathomable at the same time. Thank God that he endured the difficulties, faithfully trusting the Heavenly Father. And for that reason, we have a Savior. Because we have a Savior, we have someone that we can trust completely. So if we could, for just a moment, bow our heads and close our eyes in a moment of just quietness before the Lord, a time of decision before the Lord.
Maybe that there are some here today who would say, Pastor, I, I'm here today in a place of spiritual uncertainty. I'm in a place where I'm hoping, I'm trying to do everything that I can to somehow, someday, hopefully be accepted by a holy God. And you need to understand that God's word says very clearly that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So until you turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him as your Savior and your Lord, then you are still, according to scripture, dead, spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. That's where trust begins biblically. It begins with abandoning your self-righteousness, your best efforts, all those things, and fully and completely trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And if that is your testimony today, then I rejoice with you. I thank God for that. There may be some here today, some watching online perhaps, and you can't say that that's true for you. So I would invite you today to take that step of faith and trust the Lord Jesus. Not just as a great teacher, not as some kind of a revolutionary religious leader, but as your Savior, the one who died in your place. Maybe others here today would say, Pastor, I'm so grateful that that is my testimony. It's one of faith in Jesus Christ, but there's some areas in my life right now where I'm really struggling to trust him. My job situation isn't what I, what I wish it was. My, my financial outlook is, is, is grim. This inflation is bringing me down. It's just so many things. I'm just really struggling to trust God. I I need to trust him with my treasure. I need to trust him in my trials, my temptations, and in my training. I want to walk in trusting, in a trusting relationship with him, the one who is trustworthy. So, Father, today we thank you, first, that you are trustworthy. that you have over and over again proven yourself trustworthy. And as your word tells us, even when we are faithless, you remain faithful because it is your very nature. For anyone here today who has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that by the Holy Spirit and the power of your word, they be drawn to you today. For that one today who's struggling to trust, whatever area that may be. Help them, Lord, to understand and know the wisdom of fully and completely trusting you. And we give you all the praise and the glory in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.